before our Lord in prayer, interceding upon behalf of one another before our God in our need. Let us go before him in prayer. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that we could gather as adopted children in your kingdom, coming before your children, not as strangers from a foreign land, but children of your own household. We thank you, O Lord, for that great honor and privilege that you would call us your own and make us your own. We thank you, O Lord, for our elder brother, Jesus Christ, who has ransomed us by his life and his death. And we come, O Lord, therefore, asking. We begin and think of our own civil world that is around us. We pray, O Lord, for our government. We think of our own state government, the state of Illinois. And we pray, O Lord, for those who have been elected in office over us. We pray, O Lord, that you would instill within them integrity. That the law that is written upon every one of their hearts would be realized by the way and manner by which they rule over us. We pray, O Lord, for the preservation of the church, but not only that, the expansion and the prosperity of the church through the rule within this land. We pray, O Lord, that you'd be gracious to us in raising up leaders within our own state to rule in a way that honors you. We pray also, O Lord, for the work of the church. As Ileana Presbytery uh, gathered yesterday in order to do the work of the regional church, we pray, O Lord, that the actions taken there would be a blessing to all of those in southern Illinois and Indiana. We pray, O Lord, for the various men who serve out of bounds in various missions, whether that be chaplaincy or others. We pray that you'd bless them and their families in this work, but that you'd also, O Lord, bless the preaching and teaching of the word within the churches of Ileana. We pray, O Lord, for the ministers who are all in pulpit today proclaiming the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ to a dead and dying world. We pray, O Lord, that you sustain them by your word, but that in that the people of God would hear the word. We pray, O Lord, that you'd bless this ministry. We pray that you'd bless the PCA in that similar regard as ministers throughout our denomination, throughout the world, gather today to worship you and rest in you alone. We also pray, O oh Lord, for those who are lost. As we prayed for the government in our own community and state, we also pray, O oh Lord, for the lost in our own community and state. We pray, O oh Lord, that there would be revival in our land, not through any gimmicks or oddities, but through your word and your word alone. We pray, O oh Lord, that the preachers within this state would hasten themselves to devoting themselves to your word and the proclamation of it. And we pray, O oh Lord, that that humble devotion to the Word will lead to revival within our land. We pray, O oh Lord, for our state to be transformed. And we know, O oh Lord, that that transformation can only come through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we pray for the lost. Soften the hearts of all who do not believe within our state, within our communities. Call them to Christ. Call them to Christ through your Word. We also pray, O oh Lord, for our own growth. We think of the leadership of Providence Presbyterian Church. We think of the elders and the deacons as they continue to lead us in their various capacities. We pray, O oh Lord, that the elders among us would shepherd us well, that they would be examples among us of piety, of devotion to you, and that they, O oh Lord, that they would honor you well by representing you well to the congregation. We pray also for our deacons as they exercise the grace of liberality among us. May we, O oh Lord, learn to be a giving people, a people that give of ourselves to the ministry 
of the church and to the mission of the church to the world. We pray, O Lord, that we would be like our deacons who care for those who are lowly among us, but also, O Lord, seek to show of themselves the sacrificial nature of Christ and the offering of themselves. We thank you, O Lord, for these leadership, this leadership. We pray, O Lord, that you'd continue to refine it to your glory, that they and all of us might be an example to the congregation itself. We also pray, O Lord, for those who are in need. We continue to lift up Virgil as he is in hospice. We pray that your mercy would continue to shower upon him, that he would experience your countenance through the reading of your word and through the visits of the various members of our congregation. O Lord, grant him comfort and peace. Be with this dear saint. Supply him with your spirit. And, O Lord, minister to him by your word. In the same manner, we pray for my own wife, Marissa. She is home now, and we have a new one among us. We pray, O Lord, that you would give her strength and endurance, that you would encourage her spirit, even in the midst of likely many sleepless nights. We pray, O Lord, that you would supply her all she needs. Encourage her, O Lord. Raise her spirits and help her heal and heal well quickly. We also pray, O Lord, for Debbie as she recovers and has continued treatments. We thank you, O Lord, for the surgery that happened this week that helped towards that end. But we pray, O Lord, over the next 30 days that as Debbie receives treatment, that that treatment would go well and that you would protect her, that you would calm her anxiety that she might have right now and that you would grant her the peace that is only found in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. There are many controversial topics in the Christian church that a preacher can hone in on. In our own day, we might think of issues like sexuality. We might think of issues of political nature as We think of perhaps the rise of the Christian nationalism movement. There are many controversial topics that the church can study and hear. And the topic we are looking at today is probably under the radar, one of the most controversial topics up there. Up there with sexuality. might seem odd, perhaps, that this could rise to the boiling point of sexuality within our own congregation. But I assure you that this sermon has the capacity to do such that. This is the third and fourth controversy that Jesus is dealing with with the Pharisees. You remember and recall that Jesus first caused strife with the religious elites of his own time by forgiving sins. Strike one. And we saw last week, strike two, and Jesus invited all sorts of undesirable people to dine with them as the honored guest among sinners and outcasts alike. Strike two. And now we see strike three and four wedded together in this doctrine of the Sabbath. Jesus plucks grain on the Sabbath to the dismay of the Pharisees. And then Jesus chooses to do an elective surgery on the Sabbath by healing a withered man's hand. And at this point, the Pharisees have had enough of our Christ. But here we'll see those last two controversies in Luke chapter 6. Will you stand with me as we hear concerning the Sabbath from our Lord? This is the Word of God. On a Sabbath, 
While he was going through the grain field, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of the Man, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. And he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him then, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, and he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. When I was in college and even in high school, whatever job I had, I requested to have Sundays off. I remember as I worked at Buffalo Wild Wings in the heart of the house, in the kitchen, as even one who would train those who would come in, I demanded to have Sunday off. And it was not a popular demand. They wanted me to work according to their pleasure whenever they wanted. But I was unyielding. They often would schedule me to work Sundays and I would not show up in rebellion and say, this is your problem, not mine, because I will not work on the Sabbath. It was a principle before I had any principles on the Sabbath that I would not go to Buffalo Wild Wings on the Sabbath. There's no way in my mind that I would want to fry your wings on Sunday. There are much better things to do on Sunday. But I was a bit inconsistent to my own chagrin. You see, every Lord's Day, quite ironically, after church, my friends would go to all sorts of eateries. It was quite ironic. I demanded to not work on Sunday, but I demanded others to work for me on Sunday. I would, can think of all the types of places we would go with my friends. We loved a place called Tacos and Burritos. They had the most delicious burritos in all the land. I loved going to that place. But I was inconsistent. To my own chagrin, I had, as my title says, Sabbath for me, but not for thee. Today we are looking at the idea and the theology of how we should set aside the Lord's Day as a Sabbath. You see, Jesus seeks in this passage to correct the understanding of the Christian Sabbath. You might look at a passage such as this and assume that Jesus Christ is doing away with the Sabbath. But that's not what he's doing here. You see, some of us may be too rigid and legalistic with Sunday. That's likely a super minority within this congregation. We probably have the opposite 
we, most of us, are too loose with the Christian Sabbath. And so while Jesus, and we read this passage here, well, as we read it, we are not dealing with perhaps the problems of the Pharisees, but Jesus still seeks to correct us. He still seeks to reorient our minds on how we should look at the Sabbath. Jesus is not doing away with the Sabbath. He is seeking to correct the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath. He wants to reorient our minds to not abusing or misunderstanding the fourth commandment. Jesus is indeed the Lord of the Sabbath. And what we see here is that he offers his people Sabbath rest. He is the Lord. And what he's going to teach us today is how we should rest in him on his day. When is the last time you had a full day of rest? We are a people that whenever somebody asks how you're doing, you say, what? I'm busy. I am tired. When is the last time you have had a full day of rest? We tend to be a five and two kind of people, not a six and one. We work five days at our day job, 40 hours a week. We clock out and go home, and we have two days of vacation every week. But how many of those days are used for rest? How many of those days? In those two days, do you have one full day of rest? I bet not. You are a run, ragged people, and it harms you. The Lord has made us to be people that are six in one. And so just like the Pharisees, but in the other direction, Today we will see how we are to rest in the Lord. And so the main idea, Jesus reveals the true purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus reveals the true purpose of the Sabbath. The first thing we see in this passage is that the Sabbath can be misunderstood. The Sabbath can be misunderstood. Look down at verse 1 with me. On the Sabbath, while they were going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them together with their hands. But the Pharisees said, what are you doing? Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You see, what the Pharisees charge in both of these stories against Jesus Christ is that he is doing things that he should not be doing on the Sabbath. And we see this is a need of necessity here. In the latter story that we'll get to later in the sermon, we see a need of mercy Both necessity and mercy wedded together in this passage. The people must eat. And so what do the disciples do as they're traveling on their way? They grab some grain. They rub it between their hands to remove the grain from the chaff and they eat it. It's kind of like sunflower seeds, if you could imagine. Crack the the nice seed out and take a snack. That's all the disciples are doing. It seems so minor in today's parlance. All they are doing is walking and as they are walking taking some grain and eating it as a snack for substance. The Pharisees, being the Sabbath police, took great issue with this. They loved the law, perhaps even to a sinful degree. They had the law, but not only the law, they wanted to add to the law. And that is what Jesus is seeking to correct here. There are additions to the law. The Jewish people at this time had a document called the Mishnah, And there were 39 articles of Sabbath-keeping in that document. And each of those articles had six sub-articles. Imagine just the length of such a document on what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. That's the, the thing that Jesus is coming at here, is that basically that document. And perhaps the trivial or unique novel interpretation of it. 
You see, in the Mishnah, there are all sorts of things you could not do. And here's some of it, just so you can get a flavor of what Jesus is trying to correct here. Tying your shoes with two hands. If you could do it with one hand, it was okay. But with two, that's a work on the Sabbath. Sewing a stitch, weaving together two threads, making a loop out of yarn, cooking food, making a fire, also extinguishing said fire, traveling, carrying things. And before you think of these chairs that we all set up today in your Sabbath violation, this is even worse than that. Things like wallets and keychains, your purses, all violations, your car keys, all of you, Sabbath violators, writing a note in your Bible. Couldn't do that. Shining your shoes, taking down or setting up your tent, selecting a berry to eat. You see, you can eat berries indiscriminately on the Sabbath in the Jewish tradition, but you couldn't separate the good ones from the bad ones. You just had to eat them all. If I look at the congregation and we go through the Mishnah, I see all the worst type of Sabbath violators. I see some of you with Bibles in hand carrying all these things in your laps. That's what Jesus has a problem with. He has a problem with that, not the Sabbath itself. You may wonder whether it was another sin for the disciples to eat this grain. It seems like they're robbing that man who did all that work to plant the grain, but that's not the issue. In Deuteronomy, we are reminded that it is free for in Jewish society as you're traveling to gather grain and to cut it and to rub it between your hands and eat it. You take no sickle to it. You don't harvest it, but you take some for yourself. This is a fourth commandment issue. Is Jesus' disciples, are they destroying the fourth commandment by eating some grain as they walk to the house of the Lord? The answer is no. Jesus could have said all sorts of things in order to defend his guys. He could have said something like, oh, these silly laws that you Pharisees follow. He could have said, well, I am the Messiah. What I says goes, you know, the, the ancient mom phrase, it's my way or the highway, because I said so. could have said that. But no, he could have called them legalists, which certainly they were. But instead, he offers them an example, a difficult example at that. In verse 3, Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of the Lord and took and ate the bread of the presence. Jesus takes their simple squabble of them eating grain and he amplifies it by showing them an, an extremely controversial act perhaps in the Old Testament. The bread of the presence was created every week, 12 loaves for the 12 tribes of Israel, set outside the Holy of Holies for God alone. The, at the end of the week, that bread would be then given to the priest alone for the priests to eat as they baked new bread and set it before the Holy of Holies. The only people permitted to eat this bread were the priests. No one else. It was forbidden in the ceremonial laws of Israel. Leviticus, it would have been outlawed. And so Jesus gives them this picture as David's men famished. They have been ran out of Jerusalem by King Saul. They are wondering if they will live or not. He is the anointed king of Israel, yet he is not on the throne of Israel. And so his men have to flee, fearing of their own lives. You see how quick they flee in that passage we read this morning. They have no armors. They need swords. They, need, they have nothing. 
They ran out as quick as they could. And so they go to the tabernacle as they are leaving. And at their, as they're at the tabernacle, they beg for food. Food and armament. We need food and weapons. This would have been an odd thing to ask. The priest said, sorry, we have no normal bread. All we have is this set-apart holy bread. I wonder what would you do in this situation? Would you turn David away or would you let him feast upon the bread? Was the priest sinful for allowing David to feed on the bread of the presence? And the answer is no. And here, here's why. Here's why it's not a sin is because that was a mere ceremonial law. We know that there are three types of laws in the Scripture, one being ceremonial. Those laws are dealing with the idea of the ceremonies of Israel. You think of the sacrificial system. That's all ceremonial. In the Lord Jesus Christ, that whole set of laws are completely fulfilled and abrogated, no longer needed. You know, the civil laws of, the, of Israel, those types of laws of what would happen if someone violated the moral law. And then you had the moral law itself concerning right conduct within the land. And so what happens in this circumstance with David and his mighty men is that the priest sets aside the ceremonial law for a second in order to fulfill the moral law. Sets aside the ceremonial to uphold the moral. These men are in need and we must care for them. Even if that means we have to break, bake new bread. You see, sometimes when we are dealing with the Christian Sabbath, we can think that it's all ceremonial. We think of the fourth command. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the Sabbath, so we no longer, he is my Sabbath. I no longer need to think of the Sabbath at all. And there are very true aspects of that in the ceremonial sense. But we also know in the Ten Commandments that there is a moral aspect to the Sabbath. It is both ceremonial and moral, much like the laws that we see throughout the Old Testament. Some of the old stuff is ceremonial, it is done away with, but the moral implication remains, and it's the same for the Sabbath itself. It is still in effect. Certain parts abrogated, but the moral command is still here. Joey Pipo, one of my favorite commentators on the Christian Sabbath, says this, If it is proper to violate the ceremonial law when the Lord's anointed was on the Lord's business on the Sabbath, then surely the anointed and his followers may break a man-made law while they are doing the Lord's business on the Sabbath. Jesus' guys, his disciples and himself, did not break the Sabbath command when they ate that grain. They violated the Mishnah, not what the Lord has called them to. The, Phil, the, the Pharisees misunderstood the Sabbath, and you have that same temptation as well. Certainly, you don't have your own Mishnah. Maybe you do. I don't know. We don't. But you go the opposite direction. Your beef with Jesus is not that what the Pharisees have. The Pharisees want him to do nothing of the sort. Your beef isn't with that. If Jesus were to come to our own congregation today, his beef wouldn't be Your beef with him wouldn't be that he was plucking grain on the Sabbath. You would have no care if Jesus plucked grain or not on the Sabbath. Your beef with Jesus, believe it or not, would be, why aren't you going out with me after church? 
How I can't believe you, Jesus. Why can't you go to Cracker Barrel with me? You see, your beef with Jesus would be that he does not go far enough. And you're thinking in this passage as you read it to yourself, thinking that Jesus just does away with the Sabbath, you misunderstand what he's doing. He's reorienting and correcting. He's reorienting and correcting. I desire then as you read this to have a gospel Sabbath consciousness of setting aside one day in seven. Jesus reveals the meaning of the Sabbath. We see that in this passage. You can misunderstand it. The next thing I want you to note, though, is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one that defines what the Sabbath is, what is good and what is bad. That's what we see in verse 5. The Son, the son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. When you're thinking of the Lord of the Sabbath, I want to perhaps for a moment think of the origin of the Sabbath. When did the Sabbath begin? Perhaps some of you might say Exodus 20, Scott. There is the fourth commandment where they are told you are to Sabbath one day in seven. Six days you shall work and one you shall rest in the Lord. But there is an even more prehistoric origin of the Sabbath. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work and it was done. And he sabbath, sabbathed, rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. He had spent six full days creating and on the seventh, he creates no more. He sits upon his throne, rest, rested on his throne. And the purpose of this being revealed in Genesis is for Adam and Eve, for them to know that the Lord that had created them expects them to labor six and to rest one. Six days you shall do all that you need, and on the seventh you shall rest. That's not the only example, though, before the Exodus account of the Sabbath. If you think of the Israelites as they are taken out of the land of Egypt, the Lord tells them to gather up manna. And what does he tell them to do? He says, gather up six days. On the sixth day, gather a double portion in order that you might be provided for on the seventh because there will be no manna on the seventh because we will rest as a society on the seventh. And so this isn't just a, a, a ceremonial command to be done away with. Before sin has entered the world, the Lord called his people to rest. When sin entered the world, when he called the people to himself, he calls them to rest. After he saves them and brings them to Sinai, he reminds them that law that they've already heard, both in the garden and as they have traveled, that they are to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall work and do all of your work. And on the seventh you shall Sabbath in the Lord. The origin of the Sabbath is not mosaic. It was not made by Moses. It was instituted by God in the creation as he himself rested and gave that same rest to his people. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop, said, We must not allow ourselves to be carried away by the common notion that the Sabbath is a mere Jewish ordinance and that it was abolished and done away with by Christ. There is not a single passage on the Gospels, which proves this. In every case where we find our Lord speaking upon it, he speaks against the false view of it, which is taught by the Pharisees. 
but not against the day itself. Ryle would go on to illustrate this uh, point by saying the architect who repairs the building and restores it to its proper use is not the one who destroys it, but rather preserves it. That's what Jesus is doing with these Pharisees. He's not destroying the Sabbath and doing away with it. Rather, he is restoring and preserving it. So how do we apply this, if you think about it? We'll we'll get to the real good applications at the end of the sermon. Uh, But this is to remind us that we are six in one creatures. You're not five in two, and you're not nine in one. You think of the French Revolution when they decided to have the great idea to have 10-day weeks. Done away with the Gregorian calendar and just had 10 days a week. Work nine and rest one. That did not work for them, if you're wondering. They couldn't make it catch on. Obviously, we still have seven days. But we are six in one creatures. And some of you are workaholics. I know it. It's hard to rest. You work more than you ought to work. And some of you don't work as much as you ought to work. Part of the application here is you've wondered how your Sundays are just so busy. Well, part of that, I hate to say it, is that you don't spend the other six days well. You say, well, I've got to go to Walmart after church because we've got to eat. Well, could you have done that a different day? Is it better to go to Walmart? I mean, it just sounds miserable going to Walmart on Sunday with four kids. Why would you do that to yourself? I, I don't know. You're six in one people. Part of resting well on the Sabbath day on Sunday is spending those other days well, making sure the laundry's done, throwing in the crock pot the night before just to turn on, having meat smoking on the smoker. To have a day of rest, you must prepare for a day of rest. You must use your rest well. I may be the only Sabbatarian in this congregation. I don't know. Maybe we'll make some Sabbatarians here today. But uh, I, to my own chagrin, outside of just forcing people to work on the Sabbath when I was in high school and college, whenever I poorly plan my weeks, the Lord has his last laugh with me. Uh, For some reason, I forget to fill up my car with gas often, and on Sunday it comes to a head, often, too often. There have been more than one occasion while getting gas, you know, what are the odds of this, that after pumping the gas, when I take it out of the tank, for some reason, the hose malfunctions in your dapper pastor. And more often than not, when I do this, I get gas all over myself. The, the odd thing is for your pastor is that he wears suits seven days a week almost, And this never happens on any other day but Sunday. When I decide to get gas on Sunday, the Lord has his last laugh with my principles by spewing gasoline all over myself. I was once on the way to preach a sermon in a church that was 30 minutes away, and I had to run home because I just doused myself in gasoline. My whole car smelled like gasoline. I changed, and I still smelled like gasoline. Then I had to go preach. We should plan our weeks well because the Lord makes us this way. Why rob a good day of rest with such mundane, frivolous work? Why do you want to go to Walmart on a day such as this? Such a mundane, terrible thing. The Lord makes us six-in-one creatures. It was hardwired in every one of your DNA. 
And if you're overtired, it's probably because you've not set aside that one day to truly rest. The last thing I want you to see in this passage, yes, you can misunderstand it. Yes, the Lord is the origin, the Lord is over the Sabbath, and the origin of the Sabbath. The last thing I want you to see, though, is the blessing of the Sabbath. And we've already touched on this a bit. But we see this in the last section of Luke here. When Jesus asked them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. The Sabbath is a blessing. It's meant to be a blessing for God, uh, for God's people throughout all the world, but not only God's people, but for all society. Having one day off is good for all of society. We see in this passage that there are two extraordinary circumstances, which are works, I guess, of the Sabbath that are permitted. And we see that both in the eating, the works of necessity, you have to eat, and the work of mercy, of you, it's nice to heal. And Jesus poses the very provocative question, what would you have me do on the Sabbath? Should I do evil? Should I do what is wrong or should I do what is evil? Should I restore or should I destroy? And the answer seems obvious and sensible to us. It is good for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. That's a good thing for him to do. But not so with the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees did permit emergency surgeries, but a withered hand was not an emergency surgery in the ancient world. It may have been to this man who had his life debilitated. He could only do so much work. He was limited in his occupation, probably in severe need. This was a life-changing issue for this man. But to the Pharisees, this was just a cosmetic surgery. This was not that big of a deal. This guy wasn't dying on the side of the road with a puncture wound from perhaps a bull. This was something that could be dealt with on a different day. You could schedule this. You don't, Jesus, why do you have to do this on this day? You could do this tomorrow. But what Jesus seeks to instill within the Pharisees is that this day of rest is also a day of grace and mercy. Yes, I want you to rest in the Lord, but may that rest not be at the expense of, of grace and mercy. When you're driving home and you're on the highway and you see someone with a, a destroyed tire who seems to be losing it, do not say in your, you might pass them, but do not say in your mind, well, it's the Sabbath. I'm not going to stop for them. I have, it's my rest day. I deserve this. I earned it. Work six days. I need one. No, because this is a day of grace and mercy. It is good for you to do good on the Sabbath. It is good for us to gather to worship on the Sabbath. It is good for us to dine and eat as a family, as a church on the Sabbath. It is good to have the youth in our home on the Sabbath and, and to teach them from the scriptures on the Sabbath. All those things are good things to do on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to be a blessing, not only for you, but to your fellow man. It's to be good. So I want to conclude with just some minor applications on perhaps how you could better set apart this day. We've already learned one of them. You should better use your first six days. You should challenge yourself. When you find yourself doing mundane things in your home on Sunday, is it actually needed? Could you have done that a different time? But the second thing I want you to see, perhaps, 
is that it would be well to do certain activities on the Sabbath that communicate its difference. We have three little boys in our home. And oftentimes when we're driving home, and why I use the Cracker Barrel reference, is my oldest loves Cracker Barrel. And when we get off that highway headed towards our home, there's that Cracker Barrel. And he wants more than anything to go to that Cracker Barrel for brunch. And so he has a little concept of the Sabbath. (laughs) He knows. I tell him, well, Christians don't do these things on Sunday. We don't do that. And not in our home. But how do you make the Sabbath special for your kids? Well, what I learned from Derek Thomas is that you should have some activities planned that set that day apart. And so what do we do in the Edberg home on Sunday? We have ice cream Sundays, chocolate, and pudding. Communicates to our kids, well, do we have ice cream Sundays every day? No. But on Sunday, that's the day that we're going to have some pudding. That's the day we're going to have something special. Mommy is going to make something so that we can enjoy this day as a family. Setting the day aside. Maybe it's the day not only for pudding and being jazzed about ice cream, but something that you can do with your family as a group. Perhaps this is the day that you go outside and go for walks with your children. Perhaps this is the day that something special can be set aside as a family system for you to do. Every Sunday we have a game night as a family. Play sorry or something like it. Setting it aside so that your family has that six in one. You may think that we're biologically wired on 24 hours every morning at 7 a.m. I must have my coffee. But we are actually six in one. And your children will learn by your habits that on this day it is different. And I know there are some things that you can't avoid. I curse the state that forces our children to go to driver's ed on the Lord's Day. I curse them. But the natural flow of your family, preserving the Sabbath, is organizing it in a way that facilitates rest and worship. We must learn to set this day apart from all others. I'm not being like the Pharisees. I'm not going to, you're going to come up to me maybe after and give me your laundry list of do's and don'ts. Uh, That's the elder's job. They can figure that out. Uh, But what I want you to walk away with today, more than anything, is guarding this day, not in some legalistic, pharisaical, Mishnah, 39 article kind of way, but enjoying the rest that the Lord has given you. You were made six in one. You need this rest. And to say that the fourth commandment has no valid need for you today is to fool yourself, to hurt yourself, perhaps to hurt your family, but also to hurt your walk with Christ. Don't be that person that does not know how to rest. The Lord promises you rest on this day if you hear his voice. Do not harden your heart Lord, rest in the Lord that has granted you rest. You've worked well. Let us rest now, today. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you, O Lord, are the Lord of the Sabbath. While we might get caught up in the details of the do's and don'ts, O Lord, this principle is hardwired in each and every one of us. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us grow in sanctification to ordering our lives better. Not in some legalistic sense, 
but for our own good and your glory. May we have rest in you today. A full day is set aside by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.